Dr. Drizo has also co-edited several books, including uh, Dermatologic Science of Internal Disease and Dermatology by Bologna, uh, Drizo and Pini for Elviser. Uh, and then additionally, he's uh, authored and co-authored over 200 articles and abstracts. Dr. Drizo has been a recipient of a number of awards, including multiple America's Best Doctors. He's spoken for hundreds of dermatology meetings, both in the U.S. and around the world. And he'll be speaking today for something I think that's very important. Uh, it's good to know the clinical aspect of dermatology, but I think the ethics, especially in today's world, is very important. And so he'll be talking on death, uh, ethics in day-to-day -day dermatology. Please welcome Dr. Jerizo. Well, thank you very much. It's a real privilege to have been invited back. I was at your meeting um, two years ago in Nashville, and I continue, I think it was two years ago. I'm getting older, so the years blur, but I think it was. And I continue to be uh, just so proud and impressed with all that you've accomplished and how the scope and uh, you know every aspect of your, your meeting and your organization just continues to flourish, which I think is wonderful. I'm very proud that... Um, all of our uh, PAs are here um, from Wake Forest and that there are also a number of Wake Forest alums that, I've, that have come up and said hi, uh, people who've worked in our department as well as gone to our school. So um, uh, I, again, I'm honored to be here. You know, um, that list of stuff that we don't usually have to go through on the introduction uh, got me thinking that this is my 32nd year since I started my dermatology residency and um, I've probably spoken about just about everything that you could speak about in medical dermatology. I've never spoken about a surgical topic, luckily for audiences. Um, and I've, I've actually, even though I don't do cosmetic stuff, I've spoken at a, some cosmetic meetings about sort of the transitional role of AK, treating actinic keratosis and wellness. But I have never been asked to speak about ethics before. And I was trying to figure how it happened. I gave two consecutive one-hour sessions on complex medical dermatology at the Nashville meeting, and it seemed I was blown away that no um, dermatology colleague of mine would have sat through two straight hours of all that intense stuff, but the room stayed full and the evaluations uh, weren't so bad, so I kind of thought I was, I'd done okay, but um, I think this time probably the thought was we got to get him away from that uh, stuff and talk about something completely different. I think what happened, there's a, a journal, pra Practical Dermatology, and they asked several dermatologists uh, their opinions on certain issues that related to ethics, and I answered them. And your committee that picks speakers is so thorough that they actually came up with that. And uh, I'm kind of surprised that I said I would do this because I've actually mentioned to our residents in the past that you need to be aware, very much beware of speakers who speak about ethics because uh, the problem is kind of like Elliot Spitzer in New York, you know, tackling prostitution and then, you know, having a problem in that area or the televangelists, you know, who preach to you and then violate what they preach about or, um, you know, and to be honest, when I think about ethical uh, champions in my career. Uh, the guy who was head of the ethics committee at our medical center was kicked out because he had an affair with the resident. 
which is about as unethical as you can be when you're in a position of professorial power over a resident. Um, uh, one of the famous, most famous professors in dermatology always railed about everybody else's ethics, so they're going to pot with pharmaceutical companies and stuff, would have a huge limo come and take him to do these $2,000 an hour uh, testimonies for malpractice suits on both sides, and so you could argue about the ethics of that. And so um, it, it's an interesting topic, and I'll try to do my best, but um, I think... Um, you know, now you're going to be able to challenge me on this because of one of the next points I'm going to make, but I think I don't have any skeletons in my closet. I do have some conflicts, none of which are relevant for this talk, uh, although you might <laughs> say that they are. That's one of the interesting things about ethics. So I've spoken a little bit about the risks of lecturing on this topic. So I plan to be around for a while. Please call me on it if you notice uh, any things that I say or do in the future that concern you. Um, what is reduction of dissonance? Dissonance is a very powerful psychological driving force. Um, it, it occurs in a situation like this. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm acting this way or I have to act this way for this reason, yet for some reason it's not appropriate to act that way. Um, that creates dissonance. You want to be doing something, there's sort of some feeling that maybe you shouldn't be doing that, that creates dissonance. And our natural psychological tendency is to reduce dissonance. And so one of the most interesting things to me is how almost everyone convinces themselves that what they're doing is perfectly ethical. And that's one of the unique problems in this area. Um, and, and I think that you know, uh, you don't want to be too uh, much, it's sort of the glass house, don't throw stones principle. People feel that they have every, all their ducks in a row because they're not doing this. But then I would almost argue that almost anyone who is really a fanatic in this area, a real zealot, could go into any situation and find some aspect of what somebody, someone was doing that they thought was perfectly appropriate that someone else didn't think was perfectly appropriate. So one of the things that I was asked to comment about in that practical dermatology article was, you know, how do dermatologists, um, you know, how do those of us that practice dermatology, how do we um, encourage good ethical behavior? I personally think that one of the strongest motivators is, is actually getting together. And I think dermatologists are very, very good at that. And when I say dermatologists, I mean all of us that practice dermatology. Meetings like this allow you to be with each other and to um, get a feeling for what everyone else is doing. Now, that could create a situation where, well, they're doing it, it's okay for them, so I can do it too. But that's not been my impression. My impression is the people in a community who tend to gather, get together for different meetings and create a sense of of local standards actually do create a sense of local standards. Now, the problem is always there's that one or two groups that never get together and that are the real outliers. And in a way, they're the ones that you'd most want to have some influence upon, and, and, and it's hard to do that. I mean, obviously, when there are extreme violations, there are state boards and others that, uh, that can try to um, enforce uh, or, or you know, bring people back into line. But as far as um, of trying to get good practice, I think my sense, and I'm a very upbeat person, is that most of us 
um, while most of us do the absolute best we can, and I, and I really believe that, um, there are um, situations probably that all of us do that someone that was a real stickler could, could pick apart. But then there would be for them as well, and maybe even a bigger one. Now, when I started, I was thinking, well, what should I do um, in terms of this discussion? Should I go back? You know, I, I remember I was a, <laughs> I think I took some sort of philosophy course when I was a, a freshman in college in 1969, so probably whatever, even though it was ancient Greek stuff, that's probably been totally rewritten since uh, <laughs> in, the, in the last 40 years. So um, I thought about classic ethics, you know, uh, the Ten Commandments, and thinking about religion. And you know, so much of what every single religious prophet spoke about, the origins of every religion, was um, if practiced, would, would make the world so much of a better place. Um, unfortunately, there is some corruption in the translation and bringing things forward. I mean, you can even think of, of some of the real religious fanaticism that exists today, and certainly the, the psychiatrist at Fort Hood was a, was a medical practitioner, practiced psychiatry, and, and got guidance you know, from a religious person. Unfortunately, a misguided one, and we don't know, and I don't, wouldn't propose to say what the influence or role of that was, but I think this sort of principle could really apply to any time religious ethics becomes exclusionary. So I think if you're going to look to religion for guidance, that's a wonderful thing, and I would strongly encourage it. Uh, I think it'd be, it, the world, again, would be a much better place. But again, I would uh, be careful at the, at the fringe you know, where you become, where religion can become uh, exclusionary and a cause of wars and other things like that. Well, I, I then decided maybe, uh, I'm already talking about ethics, talk about religion, if all I have to do is talk about politics and I'm pretty much doomed. Uh, so I thought I'd better move on and get back to something uh, more relevant to day-to-day -day dermatology because that was the title I was assigned. I want to uh, tell you that there are dermatologists who have actually tried to come up with curricula for ethics because graduate medical education committees for dermatology residency require that there be an ethical curriculum as a component of the of residency training. And, and I know probably the reason this lecture is taking place here is that you have a similar charge in, um, in terms of your uh, guidelines. So that clinics in dermatology is an attempt that someone wrote not me, next year for this topic, let's see if you can get that person in. Uh, so I came across some things in these articles that I thought were interesting. Um, what are some skills uh, that would be useful guidelines? And I may digress and comment on a thing or two uh, along the way. Uh, so one of the things that we've got to deal with is making an ethical decision in a world increasingly governed by new and really evolving. You know, I, my view is that people are so freaked out about healthcare reform and maybe that's appropriate, but when I went to Wake Forest in 1986, people said you must be nuts uh, taking on a chairmanship and creating a new department at a time when the world is gonna come to end over the next couple of years for medical practice. And you know, I think um, uh, the, the truth is that Things have gotten a little worse uh, every five years, no matter which party's been running things. There are a lot of special interests that have their hands in this pocket. At the same time, uh, I'm discouraged when people don't encourage their kids 
to pursue careers in the healthcare uh, uh, in healthcare because what hasn't changed you know in the last uh, 20 years getting a little bit worse every five years I was told we in the United States reached our financial peak in 1978 in terms of absolute dollar values of what we have and what we produce and it's been kind of downhill ever since so I think that there's a tremendous amount of joy uh, possible every single day uh, really with what we have the privilege of getting to do and remember um, I know from Alexa Kimball's analysis that dermatology is one of the most popular areas for uh, nurse practitioners and for physician assistants and it's one of the most popular areas for for physicians as well they did a survey 10 years ago and I think things probably have gotten people have gotten a little more depressed over the last 10 years but 10 years ago 97 percent of dermatologists said they'd do it again and um, unfortunately one of the most important specialties was at the other end that's pediatricians 44 percent said they would do it again um, we want to make ethical decisions in a world governed by this new financial reality and evolving financial realities that change the uh, patient physician dynamic you know there was an article in the New York Times that until 1985 healthcare providers told the patient what to do and they did it and that wasn't optimal but uh, in 1985 mid-80s mid the patients started to take more on themselves in terms of um, uh, be wanting to participate and that was appropriate but the information sources available to patients in those in, in those days were mostly from health providers you know foundations disease related foundations Academy of Dermatology psoriasis foundation stuff like that now the first 40 hits on the internet uh, on Accutane are from legal uh, websites then they don't want to know if your kid got depressed or got diarrhea they want to know if they um, you know got chapped lips they want to try to talk everybody who took the drug into into something so there clearly is a changing dynamic I told um, my wife that you know 10 years ago since I do skin signs of internal disease if someone had palpable purpura and I had to tell them I had to check their urine they're blown away that a rash could actually be the sign of something internal now they've been on the internet and they're pretty much assume they probably are going to get cerebritis retinitis and die of renal failure so I'm like the candy man as a matter of fact the residents uh, do a roast every year and that's what they had me playing because was good news all the time yeah your pathologist your dermatopathologist read your biopsy as moderate atypia extending to the border of the excision that means it was a flat mole on sun exposed skin it doesn't mean you're going to die um, and um, yeah you have spots on your ankle but you have no internal disease and there's a 60 percent chance you'll never get vasculitis again so um, there is a lot of fear out there and that's a big part of what you do too so patients feel this responsibility it almost takes you 10 minutes to convince the patient that you're not trying to kill them and as a result I'm seeing the worst atopic dermatitis that I've ever seen in 32 years uh, the elital man told people that hydrocortisone was going to kill their kid the FDA put a black box warning on the category of protopic um, and elital the um, the, the media picks up on stuff and scares people to death and tells you Accutane is going to make you fly into buildings the legal websites are terrifying people are now told they're supposed to read the package inserts and those are absolutely terrifying I find myself having to tell people look the disease you know is serious um, there, there's certainly side effects and what I'm seeing is 
Uh, there were three cases at Mayo Clinic of Quashiorcor in kids who went to parents who were very well to do, who went to quacks, who said your kid can only have rice milk, which doesn't have any milk in it. So it's kind of like a third world country where the child has rice and no milk, no protein. So how do we handle things there? Uh, what is our responsibility? Um, I certainly am impressed that, um, uh, that uh, physician assistants, um, and I know this group also includes nurse practitioners uh, who, who um, participate, um, really, I think, are, are making the difference in being able to provide care in a healthcare environment that doesn't incentivize taking care of sick people. And of course, my passion in dermatology is making sure that sick people get well in dermatology with a dermatologist as an active participant in their care, whether they have an autoimmune bullous disease or a, a connect, an autoimmune connective tissue disease or other skin signs of internal disease or just really bad skin disease like bad eczema and bad psoriasis. How do we preserve the balance, perspective, and personal priorities in a demanding profession? I certainly always felt during the 17 years that I was chair and program director that um, I wanted our residents to get home. And, and uh, if you're not a good member of your family, um, you know, you're not going to be a very effective or very good um, health care provider. Uh, effectively communicating with and treating patients of different cultural and socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnicity, and sexual orientation. I mean, this is a tougher and tougher thing, you know, at a time, again, when the healthcare system differentially incentivizes you. There are more patients within a practice that, um, you know, are paying cash, and um, they're paying cash for aesthetic services. And I think when payers got MBAs, uh, dermatology practices and medical practices got MBAs. And I'm sure the MBAs said to general internists, you know, how much do you get for staying up all night with a patient in the hospital? 20 bucks? Well, why don't you stop doing that? So we had, uh, we had hospitalists, a whole new specialty overnight. And I think when dermatology practices were analyzed, it wasn't a, a, a really... There's nothing evil about it. I mean, people are saying, look, you want to be able to continue to pay your staff and you've got commitments for kids' tuitions and who knows what else. And, you know, um, medical and pediatric derm reimburse this much per minute and surgical oncology this much and cosmetic derm that much. You've got to balance your practice out a little bit. And I don't think there's anything unethical about that. I think the, we're all entitled to make a good living. I think the point would be that I would hope that within a community, there is well-rounded mechanism to do all the things that are part of dermatology and that um, all patients um, can receive um, uh, as close to the same level of care as possible. One of the things that I find is amusing uh, is I think a lot of times a cash-paying patient actually gets worse care uh, because the patient wants to drive and sometimes the patient lets, the doctor lets them, the health care provider lets them. You know what I mean by drive. They want to make the decisions. And so um, uh, there's a certain justice maybe in that. <laughs> but uh, ideally we're going to try to do the best we can in these, in these areas. Dealing with the realities of limited resources and seeming, seemingly unlimited demand. I mean, uh, there is something that's quoted uh, a little bit later on one of the case examples where there is superb data that you can get a cosmetic appointment you know, in a day, and, you, and it's three months to get seen for a complex medical derm problem. So how do, we, how do we try to cope with that? One of the ways I think that's helped is by increasing the people power that provide care, and that's uh, 
um, you know, thank God for, for all of you. Um, whether you're doing things uh, in the cosmetic end, the surgical end, the, the medical end, it's still enabling the group to provide care to more people more comprehensively and, and better and more caringly. And, and also, I think a big part of your training is to be sensitive to the patient's needs. And uh, sometimes um, some of the people in your practice, how can I say that politely, may not be as good as that as you are. Okay, how do we adapt to the rapidly evolving information technology, legal and ethical issues? Well, you got that covered. You've got even a little stick that's got all the handouts from every talk from your meeting. And your meeting is, I think, one of the most impressive meetings in dermatology. I really do. I, I think you really are to be complimented on what you're doing. Understanding medical, legal, and business concepts. You know, um, having grown up in the 60s, there was this idea that business was bad. But the point is, if you don't run an effective uh, business, you're not going to be able to do what you need to do. You can be as idealistic as possible, but you have to create a system. And I'm very interested that some of the models of delivery of healthcare and dermatology that I thought would be ideal in a practice community, you know, the one person with her sleeves rolled up solo, you know, laboring into the night with one nurse and one receptionist, all of the hurdles that payers, you know, uh, have come up with uh, and to uh, are really aimed at breaking down that model and, and um, you know, saving healthcare dollars by rationing, by, by making that poor individual miserable. Uh, some of the models that I would have thought were a little sketchy 10 years ago, when I go into different communities, I actually see that the healthcare systems that are being invented that include networks of providers and different ranges of care are actually providing care to the sickest patients and taking all comers, whereas the practice of the, the um, uh, many times, well, I had a dinner with three former uh, professors at an Ivy League uh, dermatology program, and they were the most depressed dermatologists I've ever hung around with, and they were all doing this solo idea, and it just wasn't working. They were being beaten down. They weren't prescribing newer drugs because it took too long. All the hurdles were working. And I don't think their patients got the same level of care as patients are probably getting in practices where many of you work. Throughout this, it's important to develop and maintain a personal value system and ethical compass to guide the physician and, you know, the, the clinician throughout an ever-changing legal, socioeconomic, administrative, and clinical environment practice of medicine. Okay, well, that's all pretty heavy-duty stuff. Um, we had some pasta, we had some pizza, no lasagna, but I actually knew Louis Lasagna. His um, daughter, I think, went out with my younger brother uh, for a while when he was a professor at the University of Rochester, where I grew up. But he actually came up with a 20, 20th century medical oath that I think has some interesting principles in it. So we're going to do this, and then we're going to change gears and do some case scenarios, clinical scenarios. So I will respect the hard-won scientific gains of those physicians in whose steps I walk and gladly share such knowledge as is mine with those uh, who are to follow. You know, I have a cousin who was a dermatology resident in, Italy, in, uh, in Europe um, where she was born and raised, and um, I'm the oldest son of the oldest, and she's the youngest of the youngest, so uh, it's kind of it came full circle in our family. But um, her professor, because almost everyone goes to school in the same town where they were raised, 
and then practices in that town would actually conceal the prescription writing uh, for the patient uh, so that they wouldn't, their little tricks wouldn't be copied by the residents. And I was just absolutely blown away by that. It's just the most you know, unethical thing I could ever imagine. Um, you know, your charge as an educator you know, is to share your knowledge. And I think all of us are charged with keeping up so that we have a good idea of what the evidence is to support what we do. Now we have, a, you know, I did the, the um, therapeutic ladders in the Bologna book. It was one of, the, one of my jobs. And um, I tried to put evidence-based levels of support for the various treatments and listed the treatments in a ladder from the least costly, least toxic to the most costly, most toxic, and that correlated with least to most effective, interestingly enough. But the truth is, in our index, there are at least 250 diseases you could see in a year if you see a balanced practice of medical, pediatric, um, cosmetic, and surgical derm. And we have, F we have FDA Category 1 support, you know, for maybe 10 diseases. And they tend to be the 10 common kind of big money diseases, eczema, psoriasis, warts, acne, etc. So you're kind of, you know, you've got a little extra job in dermatology and it's easy to just get caught up going on the internet and getting a whole basket of treatments and just jumping from one to the other. But I think even though we don't have double-blind placebo um, perspective controlled protocols for managing every one of our diseases, I think it's still, you know, is critical that you think critically about what you're doing and, and have an orderly progression. It's not reasonable to give people with one comedone Accutane it's not reasonable to give someone with acne fulminans benzoyl peroxide as their main therapy. So you have to, there's an educational process that you, that you are better at doing probably than most of my colleagues um, that keeps you at the cutting edge of making these decisions. I will apply for the benefit of the sick all measures which are required, avoiding those twin traps of overtreatment and therapeutic nihilism. You know, there are times that we kind of, blow off, pardon the expression, a problem that's significant just because it is very time-consuming. I think we have to be very careful about that. If we're not going to do it ourselves, we have to make sure to get the patient to someone who will do it. And hopefully a dermatologist, not just taking people with complex problems and, and quote, dumping them on other specialties because they're not going to do as good a job if it's a dermatologically related problem as a dermatologist would. Um, the other side of it is, when I first got to Winston-Salem uh, 24 years ago, there was a dermatologist who's no longer around, uh, not because of this, but is no longer around, who um, was uh, the plastic surgeons in town, got together and went to the dermatologist in town and said, this, this person is charging $800 for excising seborrheic keratoses on all of his patients. And so, you know, how do you ethically model something when there's a, con a lesion like that? You can say to someone, yes, you're concerned about that lesion and I've done a complete exam and you actually have some actinic keratoses in one basal cell, but those lesions are over 29 spots. They never go into cancer. Or you can say, hmm, yeah, that is awfully dark and maybe we should have a look, you know, under the microscope and then charge a cosmetic fee for removing it. I think uh, there's a huge ethical uh, area there and I think you really have to be very careful to... I think if you use the principle that you would treat your patient as you would a family member, you'll probably never go wrong.
That doesn't mean your family member gets the best care when you just bring a tube of something home and don't, <laughs> and don't do the KOH and stuff. <laughs> I'll remember uh, that there is an art to medicine as well as science, and I think we're preaching to the converted here, that warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. Very well said. Probably need to talk to my colleagues about that. Uh, I will not be ashamed to say I know not, uh, nor will I fail to call in my colleagues when the skills of another are needed for a patient's recovery. And I think, again, um, all of you do well. I think that there's, um, there are occasional practices um, in which, due to no fault of the physician assistant or the nurse practitioner, um, there's not that kind of access to be able to uh, see even, you know, on an occasional basis a patient. And so I do get some referrals. No referral is an inappropriate referral, and I appreciate them all, but I just have a sense that it's, it's, it's important for the practice to have a mechanism where you can share uh, uh, even, you know, um, well, in our academic department where we have 10 dermatologists, there's, uh, there are people that are better at certain things than others, and we call each other in. And I think that's the best environment in which to practice dermatology. If someone's at a peripheral site, like we have some outlying clinics, they have the opportunity to bring that patient centrally for a conference once a week. So maybe there are some ways to develop those kind of models, but I would encourage that as a learning tool also. Um, I respect the privacy of my patients, uh, for their problems are not disclosed to me that the world may know. Most especially must I treat with care in matters of life and death. Um, luckily, we don't have to deal with this too much, but we do, and must not play at God. I think, you know, there are some, some parallels at the periphery of that issue, and certainly confidentiality in dermatology is very, very important because almost everyone has some sort of a dermatology problem. And we do tend to see all sorts of interesting people in our practice because of that. And it would be easy to, to gossip about them, you know, and that's not appropriate. And I think increasingly this issue is getting greater play nationally. I think people are more aware of it. But it has been a problem in the past. Uh, remember um, that I don't treat a fever chart, a cancerous growth. Some of this is a little bit redundant. But a human being uh, whose illness may affect their family, their economic stability, you know, I find that I didn't learn in residency, but I need to ask every single patient, how do you get your medicines paid for? I need to figure out. It's increasingly complex to figure out which pharmacies they can go to to use a coupon and which ones are going to tell them that the product's no longer made. And uh, if I want compliance, I've got to figure it out. I've got to, and if somebody can only afford a $4 medicine, I may have to tell them we're going to have to make a compromise. I'm not going to be able to use the ideal vehicle. I love to use generics, but there are certain times when a non-generic, there, there are three standards for me. One is it has to be spectacularly formulated and offer a unique advantage. Two, it has to be affordable for the patient, even with a coupon. And the third is, even if it's affordable to the patient, it can't rip off society. So there has to be a way that by using that coupon and using that product, ultimately the patient gets better over the course of a year. It's not just that I you know, like the rep or that I might give a lecture for the company or I might do this or that. It cannot be that. It's got to be, I think it has to meet those three criteria for me to do it. Uh, prevent disease, and I think we dermatologists are awesome at that. If a patient has um, sun-damaged skin on their face, they're going to get wellness lessons from 
I would venture 99.9% .9 of dermatology practitioners. We're going to talk about sunscreens before, you know, before 10, after 4, sun protective clothing. And I see this in my lupus and dermatomyositis patients with photosensitivity where other physicians just don't know it. It's not a question of them being lazy. They just don't know how to do it. So there are special issues or special aspects that dermatologists contribute. And I, I really do not, our specialties change from uh, diseases of skin, hair, nail, and mucous membranes when I was a resident to diseases and wellness of skin, hair, nails, and mucous membranes. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, so you, you've got to be involved in societal issues that relate to our specialty. And I, I noticed that, that that's an issue in your group, that you're looking at public advocacy, and I think that's great. Um, and then the rest of it is just, you know, try to, try to follow these rules. Not a bad oath. Um, it, it probably isn't complete, but it's got a lot of interesting stuff. Are there any comments or questions at this point before we go on to the second part, which is going to be looking at some cases that I didn't invent there in that review cur curriculum? Some of them are relevant, some are less so. Comments, criticisms, questions? I do have yes. a question. Good. What do you do for the patient that says, I don't want this in my chart? Um, well, I think that uh, that's a very good question. <laughs> Uh, it depends on what they don't want in there. You know, I think if it's a question of something that uh, would never have an impact on their uh, future care and that you um, stumbled on and isn't directly relevant to their problem, it's not all bad to honor the request. But other times I have to take 10 minutes and explain to them why I have to put it there. Okay. This comes up, I get a patient, you know, I talk all the time about the fact I'll be sent someone with dermatomyositis and then I'll get five patients with factitial disease. And people with that are particularly sensitive. I think if you have a real sensitive way of confronting the patient without really confronting them, you sort of give them an out but let them know that you know, um, you don't always have to say, you know, well, the person is, you know, it's, it depends on how you put it. You can put that the condition has... Uh, that we've proven, our biopsy confirmed our clinical suspicion that this is an exogenous problem, that there's a neurodermatitis component. I mean, there, there are ways to put it without being so um, inflammatory. And I think you should look at the record as something that the patient can have every right to get a hold of. Mm -hmm. But it's your record, and it's, it's a record that has to be uh, you know, there, there are going to be things, if the patient comes in and wants 80 oxycontin, for their pyodermic gangrenosum, and I know they could go into any emergency room in America and get it because their pyodermic gangrenosum is so dramatic. I'm going to document the heck out of that and what my concerns are. What about something in the history? If they had, um, just for an example, like if they had uh, HPV infection yeah. and they were um, unfaithful. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll tell you what I try to do. My more common one is... Uh, is herpes, and everybody that gets herpes that I see, well, let's say not everyone, but 99.9% .9 have recurrent disease as evidenced by the fact that it's well-marginated little cluster of vesicles. I confirm that it's herpes simplex, um, and um, I can't say when they got it, you know? As a matter of fact, I tell them that. It's often the couples there, and I, 
I'm saying, you know, this could have been a, how long have you been married now? 15 years. This could have been 17 years ago, you know, and it's been sitting there quietly and now here it is, showed up. <laughs> yeah. Having said that, though, with HPV, there is the issue of squamous cell, car of cervical carcinoma. There's the issue, you know, of transmission. There's the issue in, uh, of even, um, you know, if it's um, same-sex kind of transmission that you're suspecting. I mean, there are lots of issues there, and I suppose I try to be um, as clear to other healthcare providers that I'm covering that they're going to be monitored for risks and explain those risks to the patient without, you know, um, making the next leap and saying, you know, commenting on the kind of sex they have or whatever, or with whom. <laughs> Is that vague enough? <laughs> yeah, I think my, I, my personal standard, now remember, ethics is, you can, that's the thing about ethics, I'm telling you what I do, it has no, it, I, you know, I'm one person, and there are people that may have an infinitely better answer than that, but my standard is, um, I want to make sure that their health and all the issues that revolve around it that impact their health are, are not compromised, and I look at the medical record as something increasingly that's becoming more and more Universal that everyone will have access to it, and healthcare professionals and other patients are increasingly cared for by a team, and that team needs to understand, you know, what's going on, what the issue is, so that they can give the patient the best healthcare. And so I won't compromise on that. Is that? But it does come up. I mean, there's somebody. There's a lot of secondary gain in the medical legal arena where somebody, you know, wants to say, well, I, you, you, I got the record and you said that you suspected that this drug was the most likely one, but I think it was this one that they shouldn't have given me. And you know what I'm saying? Um, and I, I'll try to be as precise as I can as to what, if the other one is also possible, but I still thought it was more likely the first one, I'll put that. Is that, is that okay? Does that answer your question? Other, other questions or comments? Yes. My question, well, it's kind of a comment, actually. You were talking about generics versus name brand drugs, yeah. which was a great point. The other thing is that with the changing economic times this past year, I've also tried to ask my patients not only what their insurance is, but what's your deductible for surgical procedures? Because if they have a big out-of-pocket, you know, and you've got a single mom with two or three kids or a family that's just barely making it, and they're going to have to pay yeah. $1,000 or 1500 bucks out of their pocket for something that's not malignant. You know, well, I'm but glad to hear you say that because I, I completely agree with you. I think people have the ability to make their own decision, but at the same time, the more informed the decision is, the better. And, you know, these issues are not so much business issues as just issues of compliance. I mean, you're going to get... You're going to have the right relationship with the patient, and you're going to have the right compliance uh, if all those issues are handled such that the patient can be successful. And there are certainly patients that have spectacular insurance that are copay poor, and I think um, I spend a minute or two because what you tell the patient the first visit is patient education, and what you tell them the second visit is an excuse. And you will lose that patient to your practice, and you'll lose their grandmother and their aunt and their niece and all the other people that you could be caring from. I think if you're, you know, uh, for most practices that are really integrated into a community, and remember also, somebody that has a good experience in your practice is going to tell one person. Somebody that has a bad experience is going to tell ten people. So I think you're really setting yourself up for success by, you know, by doing that. 
Okay, well, let's go on to some of these examples and just interrupt. This is really more, this is a discussion from here on in. So I want people to jump in, comment, and uh, bring in additional examples. So the first patient of the day, boy, starting at 9 o'clock in the morning would be nice, you know. It's <laughs> uh, an adolescent girl who needs to start isotretinoin therapy. The patient insists on having the final say, oh, the parent insists on having the final say regarding contraception and will not allow the patient to be in the room alone with the doctor to discuss this. My own, um, this is kind of being set up in a way about what are the patient's rights when they're 18 or 19 or 17, and that's not where I want to go. <laughs> I want to go with the fact that I probably use more Accutane on more patients who others are unwilling to, mostly people who are depressed, who I think have horrendous acne that's contributing to their depression. And if I can get the psychiatrist to uh, go along with me, and, and um, I'm comfortable when others aren't prescribing it in that setting. Um, so I do feel that my greatest chance for success is having everybody in the family on the same page. And so I love having the mom and the dad and the kid and everybody around and, um, and get it, you know, right. And I'll even sway the discussion a little bit and say, well, yes, of course, you know, Mom and dad think that there's abstinence when there's not abstinence, but I try to say, well, you know, we're talking about with this drug is, is such a serious thing that, I mean, obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're prince of a son or princess of a daughter, but princess of a daughter in this case um, is, uh, you know, um, is, is totally, you know, abstinent. But i uh, just say, if there was an immaculate conception or a rape, you know, then uh, where would we be? We've got a situation with a drug that could almost certainly, uh, you know, create um, an ab result in an abnormal baby. So we have to deal with it at that level. Uh, so the immaculate conception obviously is, is uh, blasphemous to bring up. But the point is, uh, I might not say that, especially not in the, in the, in the southeast, but I would, um, I'm, you know, I think the rape issue is a valid point. You know, and I think it brings home the fact that, you know, if there was any situation, you know, and, and if you do have a chance to talk with a child alone, and you could say, you know, if there was ever going to be a time that you're going to be pregnant, it shouldn't be now. It shouldn't be during these 16 weeks. And you know, despite all the effort and every tablet, having a pregnant patient with a slash across it, there's still about 10, 12 abnormal babies born a year. I mean, it's a serious problem. It's not one to be taken lightly. Um... Nevertheless, I think the big tragedy is that Accutane's been out for 30 years. And if there are three levels of drug safety, would you give it to your kids? What's my malpractice risk? And how long does it take? People will say they're not using it because of their malpractice risk, but the truth is, I think the number one issue, the plunge in Accutane prescriptions was when iPledge came in and took a half hour. And so really, how long does it take? is a lot of reason why things aren't done in various practices. And uh, I think a lot of times it takes less time to give the patient the best treatment, um, look them in the eye, make them feel that you do what you do for your family member and document as your method of malpractice prevention, and get them well. And the fact that there's a great rise in suits in Florida for failure to prescribe Accutane, I think shows that there's malpractice risk, that the lawyers have you just where you want you, they can get you for doing or for not doing, so I find it easier to do what's best, than, uh, but that doesn't mean you have to. I mean, I think these are an area where practice is completely entitled to make their own decision. We don't have to subsidize 
the time that it takes to write some of these medicines if we don't want to, as long as someone in the community does. And you could steer the patient towards that. I think you're going to get into trouble for not prescribing Accutane if you say, well, yeah, you've failed, you know, minocycline or doxycycline for the last 10 years, but that's what I'm going to give you. Or you can say, listen, there is this medicine, Accutane. I don't prescribe it anymore, but so-and-so across town might. Uh, okay. Next patient is an elderly man who has a large basal cell carcinoma of the nose but refuses therapy. It doesn't hurt. Now, for me, just like with the seborrheic keratosis, I'm going to tell a patient that it's just completely benign. Now, obviously, there are seborrheic keratoses that have scared the heck out of me because they were melanomas. So, you know, the big old warty one, you know, is, is a no-brainer with all this, the uh, horn cysts. But the flat ones can be really tough, and when in doubt, you may have to take those out. But when you get into a basal cell, 10 times more common than any other tumor, it's in the H zone on the nose, so it has a 17% recurrence rate with simple modalities. I really try to not let that patient go without really twisting their arm, and I have no financial incentive. I'm basically on a straight salary, and I don't do the surgery myself. I refer, if it's in the H zone, to our Mohs surgeon. Um, so to me, um, it's just I've got to tell them the facts, which are these tumors have doubling time, and it certainly hasn't bothered you up to this point. You know, but um, it doubles, and it starts to erode and gets infected, and yeah, you're 75, but you know, when you're 100, uh, we'd like you to still have the central portion. You know, I don't, I'm not that scary, but that's what I'm thinking. And the truth is, I saw in a case when I was a resident of a family that had a lot of guilt about their mother being in a nursing home. She was 90. She had huge hypertrophic actinic keratoses, and they just absolutely refused treatment. And she came back a year later and had six huge squamous cells on one side of her face alone. And they were so upset and so depressed. And I really think you're wrong not to paint the picture, uh, not so graphically, but of the fact that this is something that really needs to be done. You know, and I, I think a lot of people are going to say, well, you know, they've suffered. It's, you know, it's not, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, my colleagues can do a little local anesthesia. You don't have to come into the hospital. They'll, you know, tease out the roots, and I think they can make it look, look pretty when you're finished, when they're finished. I, I really believe that. I'm, I'm not, I can't think of a time in 32 years where a, a patient actually talked me out of treating a basal cell. Now, there were times when I had to have some, some really, there's one guy who was the founding conductor. He was an Italian guy, and I'm Italian-American, so I was speaking to him in Italian. He's, he's a founding conductor of our symphony. He's 90 years old. And I'm so glad, because that was 10 years ago. And this guy's a single guy. He's sort of a, he's got, you know, a young girlfriend in her 70s, you know, and I think he's really glad he didn't lose his nose. <laughs> you know, so he kind of thanks me for it. Uh, next is a patient with psoriasis who saw an advertisement on television for a new biologic drug for psoriasis. Ask your doctor. Psoriasis is not severe, but the patient does not want to be bothered with light treatment or messy topicals, insists on having a biologic drug prescribed. Well, I have my Who's Mentor Index in my head for my criteria. If somebody, I, I'll get a patient who has one comedone who wants Accutane. And I'll have a patient with, you know, acne conglobata, you know, that's mind-bogglingly scarring that doesn't. And I'm going to do my best to encourage them, <laughs> and I'm not going to let the patient drive. If you think about your practice of a situation that you weren't happy about, I guarantee you it's because you let the patient push you into something that you weren't comfortable with. 
ultimately you have got to do things your way. I mean, I'm not talking about being a bully and like it's my way or the highway. But I tell, I'll think of a way, if this comes up with my topics who have so much fear and I'm seeing eczema herpeticum every month instead of every five years now coming into our emergency room as new patients because nobody's treating their eczema or people are afraid or they're afraid or whatever. And um, so I, I'll say something, they say, well, I don't want to use protopic, I don't want to use cortisones. Corticosteroids. I'm like, well, uh, I'll tell you, I, I, you know, I'm, I've got to sleep at night, and I've, um, I've seen complications. This disease is not safe, in my opinion. I've seen, you know, significant problems with staph infections and with fever blister infections that spread to the rash, and I, and I, and I can see how this disease is affecting your family, and I know I can make it better. I've been doing it this way for 32 years, and the newer medicine I've used for the last 10. And I really wouldn't be comfortable. I'm sure there are people who, in the community who will do it your way, but I wouldn't be comfortable doing that. And usually they'll come around, and uh, I like to make therapeutic contracts. Let's do it this way for three months. Because most people nowadays bring a bag of things, and they've actually, we're not, you may have noticed, we're not getting new treatments in dermatology. So they've already done everything there is to do. You know? So um, really, your opportunity to help them, and I feel that we can help everybody. It's really unusual. As a matter of fact, I can't think of a time. We can't do something for every single person that comes in. So I'm, I'm confident that way that we can help, and uh, I think you have to create realistic expectations. The lichenification is going to take three months every time the kid scratches, you've got to set the clock to three months. The pigment takes a year every time they scratch, you've got to set the clock to a year. But the sandpaper will be better in six weeks. Let's do it this way for six weeks and see. And uh, if you're not happy, you can switch. But I, I really would encourage you to not let the patient drive. Also, we're creating these ridiculous expectations that there's going to be a new biologic every six months so that our patient uses one and then they're scratching. Everybody's a 10, 20-year disease. Don't look for the three-week solution. Otherwise, everybody would be on a Medrol dose pack, you know, or <laughs> three-week taper of prednisone, and they'd rebound. 